I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Hannah Bourne Taylor on her new memoir, Fledgling. Hannah Bourne-Taylor grew up in the English countryside, the daughter of a biologist and conservationist. Years later, she found herself living in rural Ghana for her husband's work. Without a job or purpose of her own, she sank into depression and was suffering from acute anxiety. Her memoir, Fledgling, which we're going to be talking about today, examines the struggles of reshaping an identity when normal life has fallen away. Fueled by the power of nature, it's also a raw and uplifting account of Hannah's unexpected bond with two wild birds who she rescues and raises with the intention of releasing back into the wild. Hannah, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, it's so great to be here chatting with you. Let's talk first of all then about, I guess, your memories of growing up in the English countryside and why that is so important to the later story. Well, I suppose it's mainly thanks to my parents and the fact that they didn't allow my sister and I to have a television when we were kids. And instead, we used to spend all of our spare time outside just walking around. So we weren't going to nature reserves per se, but we lived in the countryside and we were always going on walks. And my parents had this amazing ability, particularly my dad, of lacing magical facts into what we were looking at. So I learnt without knowing and distinguished different species of birds from the next and different plants from the next. And I I uh, sort of got addicted to this, the secrets that were unfolding as he taught me. And I didn't know that this was really important. I sort of took it all for granted. Uh, we'd watch the birds at night, especially the swifts um, every summer. And it wasn't until I moved to Africa that I realised actually, firstly, that the birds had become anchor of home for me in England. But secondly, that that element of my life, that watching and connecting nature was really the thing that made me feel most happy and the thing that I needed most as well. And yeah, you talk in the book about how ideas of home are much more complicated than just where you happen to be living at the time. Yeah, for me, um, home was always a little bit complicated because I had moved so much just randomly with my parents. So I'd had something like 19 houses. And so for me, every time I moved, I had to start all over again. And so ironically or naively, perhaps I thought that when I moved from central London to Ghana, it would be a bit of a breeze because I was used to moving house. But what I didn't realise is that the belonging element of home is so much deeper than a dwelling. And for me, 
that my identity was all intertwined with the countryside of England and I didn't quite know how to be or who I was without it so you know went a little bit bonkers um, but but got over it. (laughs) So let's talk about what the circumstances were why you ended up moving to Ghana then. So I was 26 and I was living a quite rushed existence in central London and my husband got a job in Ghana and so I moved with him and I thought it was going to be really really exciting and you know the adventure of a lifetime which it was it just wasn't to start with because what happened was I became overnight a trailing spouse, which is a term used to describe spouses that follow their um, other spouses overseas. Mostly they're women, um, but of of course, they're also men. And I wasn't allowed to work with the permit situation there. And again, I thought that would be great. I thought I'd live some sort of luxury life. and, And I didn't. Instead, I realized that without the layers of social life and work commitments and even things like commutes to get you out of the house, I didn't quite know how to live a blank existence. I had no purpose. And that lack of purpose and that lack of initial touch points of, you know, one friend turning into five or 10 or or busy work commitments that would occupy my mind. Without those things, I just dissolved into nothing. I realized I didn't really know who I was. And actually, I think that it's quite similar to the circumstances in which the whole world found itself in as a result of COVID lockdowns you know, overnight routine changing into sort of nothing and having days on end without speaking to anyone, without leaving the house. That was my life. But before the pandemic, when I felt like no one could relate to me. So suddenly my life was really silent because my husband, lovely man, nothing against him, um, but he was working in a new industry, a new culture, a new, uh, a new country. And so was working pretty much 24 hours a day, often away for whole weeks on end. And so, yeah, I was very alone. And indeed, for the first few months of your being there, you're in a an apartment in the city in Accra, um, which is a lot different to places that we'll talk about where you move to later on. So tell us something about your first impressions of the place when you were first there in that apartment. Well, so, I mean, I would say that I grew to really, really love the country and the city of Accra. I think it was nothing to do with the actual place. It was to do with me and that little apartment. I was living in a pretty much empty apartment and I had no internet, um, no car. And the layout of the city, especially back then in 2013 when I moved, was completely different to what I had got used to in terms of city layout. So no strings of cafes, no sort of hub, nowhere to sort of wander around. And so I stayed in the apartment pretty much. And I I had literally nothing to do. So I would stare at ants. I would stare at shadows on the wall. I felt like I was in prison. And, and I, at some point I realized that there was sort of no point getting up in the day. So I got what you could describe as situational depression where I sort of didn't really feel the need to wake up. And I would sort of sleep later and later into the day. And a lift really for my husband coming back, at which point he would be so tired and overworked. I wouldn't really want to cry about how I was lonely and bored because it didn't, it seemed rather pathetic. So yeah, it it sort of exacerbated um, quite rapidly into just this utter feeling of despair. So you move then to another house, a bigger house, a house on stilts with grounds and a pool and, and plants and and it seems initially that, you know, the situation is, is going to be better. Tell us, I guess, tell us about what the, the garden life was like in that new house. 
Yeah, so it was a, an incredible old colonial dilapidated mansion that we were living in because it was about to be demolished. So it was a sort of used to be amazing, but rather reclaimed by nature. To me, that was perfect, actually. Another empty house, but it had this enormous garden that surrounded the house. And it had uh, palm tree groves and mango trees and this pool that felt like a smug cliche. I never thought I would have a pool ever. And suddenly I had this pool. And so I thought, okay, great. I'm going to be okay now. You know, I'm going to be able to occupy my time. I'm going to be able to swim all day. I'm going to be able to walk around these palm trees and mango tree groves and everything's going to be fine. And it was for about two days until I realized that the ants were drowning in the pool because they could get into the pool and swim, but they couldn't get out because they were slipping on the tiles. And I had been watching the ants in the apartment before me and ants are fascinating anyway. And also ants weirdly reminded me of myself in that they really need each other. They, they live in a very complex society. And if one ant loses its scent trail and can't find its way back to the colony, it will die for exhaustion from basically needing, needing its kind. And I felt like that. And so I couldn't bear to leave these ants. So I, I swapped my relaxation relief of moving there and turned it into this frantic routine of saving the ants all the time, uh, swapping swimming for putting rafts in the swimming pool instead, so using the palm fronds. Uh, so it just, it all became a bit ridiculous because I couldn't rationalise it at all. I was patrolling the swimming pool at night time. Basically, I was experiencing quite severe OCD and I actually had OCD uh, since I was a child, but I'd managed to manage, manage it quite well. I had simmered it down. I'd never told anyone about this um, element of my psyche either. And so there I was really battling in silence um, to the point where it, it really was, it felt like I was teetering on the edge of insanity, to be honest. And this is coming from, you know, your sort of loneliness and being isolated while your husband's out at work. And you're struggling to, you know, to meet people, to meet even like other, there's a couple of aborted attempts to meet other expat people. But to what extent do you think actually the other way around as well, that, that, you know, the more isolated you got, the more OCD you get in that place, that in itself prevents you from meeting other people and making connections? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was a complete vicious cycle. I mean, I had attempted to integrate into the expat world. And eventually, you know, I, I made lifelong friends. But to start with, I just was the odd one out into a group of middle-aged women who were interrogating me um, without even knowing my name, um, sort of accusing me of being too young to hang out with them. That was a sort of general idea. And it was incredibly intimidating. I already felt very vulnerable and I, I just couldn't cope. I didn't have a thick enough skin by that point because I had been, you know, crying every day, not wanting to get out of bed for months because I hadn't met anyone. and then to meet people and then for them to react like that. I just couldn't, I didn't know how to navigate that. And so of course, by being alone and then having this vicious OCD sort of warp my mind, that made it impossible to be normal or to, or to try to integrate at all. So yeah, the layers of vulnerability, loneliness, isolation, and then topped by anxiety and OCD just made it very stark uh, situation that I just didn't know how to deal with really. Luckily, at this point, another very important man comes into your life. This is Shoe Bill. Tell us something about him. 
Oh, I'm really glad you ask about Shoebill because Shoebill's been missed out by quite a lot of other interviews. Uh, Shoebill is really the love of my life. <laughs> he is with me now. Uh, he's a street dog and he turned up at our gate in that crazy swimming pool <laughs> context. Um, and he was desperate. He was more desperate than I was. He was a male adult homeless dog. And it's not a good place to be a street dog in a crowd. You know, they get run over all the time. Uh, stones are thrown at them. They have a really harsh life. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we both knew that we weren't going to um, <laughs> we weren't going to leave each other. Although, actually, my husband did turn the dog away for one night because, you know, dogs on the streets, they have rabies potentially. And we weren't sure whether he belonged to someone. We didn't want any trouble. But the next day, Shoebill was still there in the morning. And uh, he ran into my arms and I hugged him. And, you know, that was the beginning of uh, basically a support dog relationship where, yes, I saved him from the streets, but he gave me companionship and he gave me that very, very important feeling of being needed. And that changed a lot of my psyche almost straight away. It becomes very ill, unfortunately, quite quickly. Yeah, he became life-threateningly ill. It's a miracle that he survived. Uh, he had parasitic diseases. And I knew that once he had managed to somehow survive, I couldn't bear the risk of keeping him in the country uh, because I loved him so much. So I sent him to England to live with my parents. And then I split my life between Shoebill and Robin, so Ghana and England, on a sort of weird rotation. So I became, I felt like I was in limbo which also was quite difficult on my mental health because I just didn't know how to settle in either place. Uh, so, yeah, um, <laughs> the emotional roller coaster continued. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Hannah Bourne-Taylor, and we're talking about her memoir, Fledgling. And Hannah, you have achieved, I guess, a, a certain amount of equilibrium in this place, although unfortunately Paul Schubel has had to, had to be um, banished off to England for, his, for the good of his health. But then your husband is offered a new job, and it's in a completely different part of the country, and you move again. So tell us about this new place and what it was like. Yeah, so I was um, faced with massive trepidation, uh, thinking, oh, gosh, we're going to leave Accra, which I found hard enough, and we're going to move three hours away to the remote rural grasslands. How is this going to be? But it turned out it was actually a much better environment for me to be in because it was this place where the wild really dominated. So imagine 11 foot high swaying grassland and a big, wide tropical river meandering through it. And these little vermilion dust tracks that I would used to walk along um, for days on end. And actually, my childhood in the English countryside, of being outside all the time, of, of being with nature, really helped me settle in. And especially the Swifts. So obviously, Swifts uh, live between Africa and Britain and actually all, all sorts of different continents across the world. And uh, so when I was watching the Swifts in this new remote landscape, They transported me back to childhood memories of watching them over the rolling hills of Somerset, where I'd grown up. And uh, so they were anchors of home for me, and they reminded me to be um, resilient and to adapt. And I clutched onto that connection that I had, and then I grew it through gradually getting to know the other incredible birds that were my neighbours and became my companions. I'm pretty obsessed with swifts too. In fact, you know, I look forward every year to to when they come back and I can see and hear them, particularly outside of my window again. And let's just talk a bit more about just how incredible the Swift is. Oh, I, I'm so glad you've asked me to talk about Swifts. I could, ask, I could talk about them for the rest of my life. There's so many magical facts about Swifts. So I said earlier that I'm really passionate about magical facts and Swifts are the epitome of those things. You know, they fly for 10 months without stopping. So they fly from our um, British skies and countryside all the way to Africa and back every year without landing. I mean, without landing, without stopping, they sleep in the sky. They live in the sky. They live in the sky and are airborne more than any of the 10,000 species of birds on this earth. And, and then when they do come to breed in Britain, they come and share our external walls and they, they nest, you know, inches away from our own bedrooms in the eaves of our houses. And I just think that that is an incredible privilege to have these birds anywhere near us. Unfortunately, they're on the red list along with 69 other British birds, um, but at least we can help them. You know, we can install nest boxes and swift bricks into our houses and um, try to campaign for new housing developments to have those facilities for them too. So I feel like that's actually a way to support these birds um, because so often wild animals, we actually can't do that much about, but these birds, we can actually help. And I mentioned in the introduction that, that you found and raised a couple of fledgling birds. The first of these is a swift, which is, you know, a notoriously difficult bird to rescue and to raise. Um, so tell us about how you came to to find this young swift. Yeah, so <laughs> I watched a man destroy the swift's nest and swifts are really elite in their design. So baby swifts, there are no fledgling stages of baby swifts. They go from being in the nest to fledging. And that means when they're breeding in England, the first flight takes them to Africa and back without landing. Uh, sometimes they're airborne for three years without coming back to Britain to breed. And so it means that their um, wings aren't long enough until 
right when they're ready to fly and that they have to be a precise weight. And so when the nest had been destroyed and I saw this young bird on the ground, I assessed that it was a young bird, not an injured adult. I knew that unless I could keep it alive for the amount of time it would take for its wings to be a certain length and for its weight to be a precise weight, it wouldn't be able to live because they only eat um, insects or spiders that they can catch in the sky. You, you, know, you, can't, you can't keep a swift for life. You can't have a, a, a pet swift. And that's why they're so incredibly difficult to raise. But um, I couldn't leave it. Uh, I, it. It would just starve to death on the ground. And, and there's something horrible about looking at a swift when you're looking down at a swift. You should never be looking down at a swift. You should be looking and gazing upwards to the sky. Uh, so I took it on. And that actually meant that I had to compete with adults. Adult birds uh, feed swift babies about 20,000 insects per day. Actually, the insects are really small. They're often like flea beetles and pollen beetles, that sort of size. And I had um, a massive trump card up my sleeve. I had the termites of the rainy season. The termites are like really big, fat, juicy, nutrient, high protein insects that swarm in their millions um, at that time of year because it was the rainy season. And so ironically, having had um, months and months on end of rescuing insects, uh, ants and other invertebrates in my swimming pool, I was then gathering up whole, you know, bagfuls of termites and um, feeding them to the swift. And that was horrible um, and also disgusting um, and also incredibly difficult because the, the, the swift didn't want to be fed by me because I wasn't its mum or dad. So that was a challenge. <laughs> I don't really want to talk too much more about what happened with the swift because people need to buy and, and read the book and discover that for themselves. It's an incredible story. But just tell us a little bit more about that process of sitting there and trying to feed it. Yeah, so I have to force feed this poor bird. Um, and the bird was pretty much silent. It was pretty much mute. Massive, massive eyes swifts have, uh, like glossy, polished planets. And I would sit there just sort of wondering what it was thinking. And I would talk to the bird uh, because I felt like maybe that was better for it and it calmed me down. And as I talked, I would tell it stories about maybe where it could go, where it could fly. You know, it would be flying over the Sahara at some point in its life. Just, it's so epic. Um, and also I'd be watching the insects around me, the paper wasps on the window, the praying mantis laying her eggs. And I had this stillness about me because I was forced into it. And actually that was a really positive effect on me. I felt like my mind was calming. It was becoming more patient because I had no choice. And yeah, it was a, it was a hard process, but one that was very rewarding in unexpected ways. So let's jump forward a while and you find another bird. Um, this is a fledgling mannequin finch. So tell us, tell us what a mannequin finch looks like. Yep. So this one was a bronze winged mannequin finch. So imagine a sparrow and then half it in size. So the bronze winged mannequin finches, when they're fledglings, they're sort of different types of brown. And then as they grow and their plumage comes into their adult feathers, they are a lot smarter and, and almost have a bit of a zebra print on them um, and a bit of really beautiful emerald. Um, and actually, you might think, oh, Hannah's written a book about two baby birds, but they could not be more different, the swift and the finch. So the finch, like a sparrow, very, very gregarious, very, very busy. It's a flock bird and flock birds need each other. They learn from each other, their safety in numbers. You know, it's all about being in a flock. And so unfortunately for this fledgling, it didn't have that option. Uh, but luckily, I found it. And so I became its whole flock. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, you know, the difference between raising the two birds is so huge. Immediately, 
a bond grows between you and this Finch. So tell us something about about that, about that, you know, the sort of process of bonding and, and what it would do and how it would behave around you. So I was really lucky in that the Finch decided instinctively to accept me as a surrogate mother. This is an imprinting survival technique that a lot of baby birds and some animals do. Uh, the swift just didn't really do it in the same way. The finch would chirp at me and I would chirp back and, and that trust built almost instantaneously. And that was vital because it meant that we could communicate with each other. And also it meant that the finch would want to be with me or on me at all times. And so firstly, he would <laughs> tell me all of his different emotions through his different calls. So he had different calls for when he was hungry, when he was scared, when he was tired, a bit like a crying baby has different cries, obviously completely different from a human baby, but there were those fundamental basic needs uh, that we can relate to that the finch was very much displaying. And actually that was incredible for me because very quickly the vast differences between me and this tiny wild bird shrunk so there were none because I could see that, you know, like me, he sought comfort and reassurance and he was scared of certain things and he wanted a routine. And when he got hungry and tired, he would get irritable. And when he was happy, he would, you know, show his contentment. And also he had this incredibly big personality. He was very funny. So when he was demanding food, for example, he would throw his head back, he'd whip out his wings. And actually the wing whipping is a technique to block out his siblings so that he would get fed first. Of course, he didn't have siblings, but he didn't really, you know, get that because that was part of his little instinctive routine. And he would have this really shrill alarm. And sometimes he'd get so obsessed with um, or so into demanding food that he would fall on his back <laughs> and sort of scrabble upwards and do it again. And he sort of he sort of gave the impression of uh, sort of a matador having a tantrum or an opera singer in mid flow of an encore or something like that. He j he was just terribly funny, and and so that really helped because it was it was an incredibly intense experience. But he endeared me to him, and and so you know every wish was my command, and and that was a really good working relationship in terms of preparing him to be as strong as he could for the wild. Again, we don't have to talk about specifics of this particular bird because you know I want people to to read this book and experience it for themselves. But in general, if you want takes on a wild bird, you don't domesticate it, right? This is always going to be a a wild bird and at some point it's going to be although obviously people do you know people do or did you know keep finches as pets but you know your purpose here is always to to rewild it so what is the sort of process of taking an an injured bird or you know an abandoned bird nurturing it and then getting to the point where you have now got to get it back used to being eventually a wild bird again I mean, it was it was a massive task and the, the odds were always against us. So when I first rescued the bird, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I knew that firstly, I wanted to keep the bird alive. And secondly, I wanted to return him to the wild and put his life back on course. I just had no idea really whether it would firstly survive. Like I had no idea whether it would work and I didn't actually know how to do it. I had been advised that it would take three months and that in that time I needed to obviously feed the finch the right things so that the finch was really healthy. But also I needed to basically stalk his family. I needed to show him how to be a finch because young finches learn through observing their elders around them and survival techniques are absolutely crucial. 
um, because the finch was at the bottom of the food chain, who's basically a flying snack for all the other birds and the snakes and anything, everything wanted to eat this bird. So um, knowing his environment was crucial and knowing the behavior routines of his family was also vital. And so most of the time we were together, we were following his flock in the grasslands, which sounds a bit crazy. You know, imagine these huge, wide, vast grasslands with this sweaty woman walking with this tiny wild bird who's flitting from the shoulder to the head, sort of near this wild flock. That's what our reality was. And um, it was a constant a constant worry of, is he going to make it? Is he going to stay alive? Can I help him? Am I doing the right thing? The whole time was very, very intense, but it became more and more instinctive. You know, I tuned into the landscape on his behalf. I needed to see the dangers and the risks that were facing him. And so, you know, we both became finches in that way. And it was an extraordinary experience. Just one final question then. Having now obviously written this memoir about the story and looking back, over it what in the end do you think that raising these birds and connecting with wildlife in the way that you did helped you in the sort of situation that you was in well it was mutually beneficial I think so for me personally the finch particularly showed me how to embrace every moment because the finch had to stay in the present time you know he couldn't dilly dally or worry about the future because otherwise he'd get snapped out up by something and actually that had a positive effect on me so that mindfulness that he created for me that space that I was able to see within my day to just look at and notice the things in front of me massively helped manage my own mental health um, and something that I've been able to keep and implement now that I'm back in England so that was a major factor for me And it also reminded me that nature for me is a massively joyful experience, something that makes me feel alive and something that I can access wherever I am um, and something I'm really trying to share with other people. But the other thing that I learned, which was the most profound element, was especially because I have the contrast of these two birds, I realized that every single bird counts and matters. You know, they, they all deserve a chance, especially when we can help them. But more than that, that they're all distinct. They're all unique like we are. And I think breaking down wildlife like that is probably crucial to um, helping support it. You know, there's such a detachment and disconnect between mankind these days and the wild. And actually we are animals. We are part of the natural world. And I think connecting through personal and emotional experiences is a way to almost lift a blindfold and remind people that we are all connected and that these birds are secretly goofy or secretly incredibly smart or or resilient or, or all these incredible elements to them that we might not otherwise know. I think that's very important going forward for me as a conservationist. Well, I've been talking to Hannah Bourne-Taylor. We've been talking about her memoir, Fledgling, which is out in the UK from Aura. Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thanks so much for asking me some really cool questions that no one else has asked me. So thanks so much for having me on your show. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.